We finished up in our sermon series on John 3.16. We've been on for the last four weeks, and so we've been talking about how, well, he gave, uh, he loved, he gave, uh, we believe, we live. Once again, I'm reminded of these four kind of themes. Uh, he loved, he gave, we believe, we live. Can you say that with me? He loved, he gave, we believe, and we live. Okay, so this is what we've been talking about for the last uh, four weeks, and so we're gonna be focusing on that last part about living um, everlasting life. Um, and so I, I just want you to know, before we get started here, I, I just thought the music was great this morning. It wasn't just good, it was great, right? Not just good, but it's great. And so that's what I want to begin with today about not just good, but great, because there's this, um, I want to talk about the greatness of John 3.16 this morning. And, um, and so there is a great, there is a really uh, fantastic piece of scripture that talks about goodness and greatness. And we find it in the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter. And this is the request that we find from James and John going to Jesus. So hear these words, and they're wanting to be, once again, about talking about greatness here. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to forward to him, to Jesus, and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And then Jesus said to him, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, well, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left and your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they replied, we are able. And then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at the right hand or at the left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 other disciples heard this, they became angry with James and John, which you can't blame them. And so Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as the rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be a slave to all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. So my, I was, uh, Sunday afternoon, we, um, last Sunday afternoon, my wife and I went over to Hutchinson Island. I don't know if you've ever been there before. It's over there near Jensen Beach. And so we have a friend who actually allowed us to use their condo. It was so nice just to go over there. And listen, for about two or three days, I did nothing. It was awesome. Now, I'm a little stir-crazy, you know. I just sat there and actually just watched the world, and I read a lot. Um, but it was actually just kind of nice um, just to sit there. So um, in the midst of those couple of days at the beach with my wife, we just get away, um, I took a picture, a kind of a selfie, and in the background, um, I actually had, and this is my visual aid for the day, um, this is, well, this is what I would call a, a vintage umbrella, and, and, and the reason why I, I call it a vintage umbrella, because this umbrella is 31 years old. And, and the reason why I know it's 31 years old, because my, when we bought this umbrella, that when Don and I first got married, we bought it at the Omni Mall um, in downtown Miami. We had to save our money, because it was a really big deal for us to go buy this umbrella. We bought it at Jordan Marsh. 
And so we took Olivia, and the time Olivia was actually in a stroller, she had just, I mean, she was just a, maybe a less than a year old. And um, we have told her that story, that we went and bought this umbrella because we knew we were going to be living at the beach. And so um, we wanted to make sure we had a nice beach umbrella. And she, she was with us. Of course, she didn't remember it, but she was with us. So when I textured this last week a picture of, of me and Donna with this umbrella in it, and she said, nice umbrella, 31 years old. And then, um, and then I said, yes. And then she says, you know, Dad, I bought an umbrella and it lasted one year. Years lasted 31 years. And then she said something like, you know, they just don't make them like they used to, didn't they? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. The reason why I opened with this, um, this little story, there are certain things in life that stand the test of time. And John 3.16 is one of them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Your soul is going to stand the test of time. So I was thinking about this this week. And so um, the other day we were at a, a staff retreat, our directors, and every, you know, every six months we get together, we talk a little bit about life, and we talk about our, the direction the, you know, of our departments and putting together kind of once again strategically our plan and for um, making plans and making sure we got everybody on the same page as far as a calendar. And so every time when we do this, we spend you know, the whole day together, um, Ann Foothill usually comes up with some kind of little icebreaker game. And so Ann's, um, this week, this time, we actually, she had these little questions. And one of the questions was something, I think I'm kind of paraphrasing this, is that um, name a person that you had met that was famous. And so, you know, we went around the room and had different people that shared a little bit about um, famous people to share. And so I shared that I had actually met President Jimmy Carter. And I met Jimmy Carter, actually, it was um, about 1987. And um, he had written, him and Rosalind had actually written this book. It's called Jim, um, Everything to Gain, Making the Most of the Rest of Your Life. And so um, I actually went and bought the book. I bought it at the bookstore. And uh, I heard that he was going to be on the Emory campus. And so I, um, I got the book, and he actually signed it for me. There it is. Him and Rosalind both signed this book for him. And, you know, I found President Carter um, very engaging. He was very humble. He's just a very kind of a small man. Um, I, when, I, when I was going through and um, he was signing the book for me, he asked me um, a little bit about my life, and um, uh, very engaging. And I said, well, I'm a, I'm, a camp, I'm a student here at Emory University, and I'm going through um, seminary. And he was very interested in that. And so I had a really delightful conversation with him. It was just short, brief, but I'll never forget that. And so um, what I thought was really interesting in this book, Rosalind, this book was co-authored between Jimmy and Rosalind. And, and one of the things that she actually, in one um, little excerpt, that I thought this was very powerful because um, it just kind of depicted upon um, their, this facet, this part of their life. When, granted, so um, Jimmy lost, um, Jimmy Carter lost the election in 1980 to Ronald Reagan. And, um, and so then they had to go back to peanut farming, right? And, um, and so they were kind of searching what's next in their life. And so, so this is what she said. She says, you know, I just don't understand it. I, I just don't understand why God wanted us to lose this, this election. She says, and then I would say to Jimmy, 
Jimmy was always more mature in his Christian attitude than I was. He would say, Rosalind, do you think people are just robots that God controls from heaven? Or you don't really think God orders these things like this, do you? And then she goes on and says, you know, it's hard for us to accept the fact that our priorities are not the same as God's. We attach too much importance to things that like popularity, wealth, political success. To him, problems that often seem so important to us at the time are really not very important or significant at all. But God trusts us to make the best use of the time we have to try to live like Jesus and to make our lives meaningful and beneficial to others no matter where we are. I did finally learn to live with the results of the 1980 election, but then she goes on and she says, but I would never pretend that it was easy, she said. Yeah. So you know, the reason I share this with you today um, is, you know, President Carter is probably not going to go down in history as one of our greatest presidents. Chances are, he's just not. But I tell you what, um, he will go down as, as someone who had a deep passion and love for humanity. Matter of fact, they even have a, um, they have a, a, a mission statement on the, um, they have a, the Carter Center, and this is the, on the webpage of the Carter Center's vision statement, waging peace, fighting disease, and building hope. And, and so, you know, one of the things that uh, after the Carters lost the election, uh, President Carter lost, um, he went to work. But he really didn't go back to work so much on the peanut farmer, but he started working for Habitat for Humanity and started building homes. And then um, he did so much, a, a lot. So I, what, a reason why I say, you know, I, I don't think his president was great. Uh, he'll go down in history, probably not as a great president. But what he did after his presidency was great. To the point, in 2002, he did win a Nobel Peace Prize. Not bad for a peanut farmer from Georgia. So the reason I share that with you today, there is a difference when I think about good to great. When I first came here 11 years ago, by the way, I've been your senior pastor for 11 years today. I want you to know that. So I'm very glad, honored. Thank you. Thank you. I, I reason why I share that with you because I'm just honored. I preached my first sermon over there in the other in their fellowship center. And, um, and so when I first came here, um, the staff was reading this book called Good to Great. It's um, from Jim Collins. And um, it, it really, it's, a, it's more of a, uh, it's, it's a book about um, how to take a company. It's from a, more of a business uh, stand, standpoint. But he also talks about the idea about great leadership. And so once upon a time, he was sitting around, the, the, he had already written one book that was extremely successful, and then he was sitting around some other friends, and they said, you know, Jim, you've written about all these successful um, companies. And he says, what? And one friend, just off the top of his head, says, what's the difference between a good company and a great company? And that became the theme for this particular book. And, and so I thought was really interested in his book. He talked about different levels of great leaders, and one of the, um, can you show that little triangle thing there? Okay, so this is uh, Jim Collins's kind of pyramid for a great leadership. And so level five leaders, the executive leader, he says, build, builds enduring greatness through paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. And then he goes on and he, in this book, I, let me just quote this, he, he quotes, humility plus will equals a level five great leader. 
And then this is who he talks about of being who a, a, a president that was a level five, not just a good leader, but a great leader. This is what he said. Level five leaders are, an, are a study of duality, modest and willful, humble and fearless, to quickly to grasp the concept, think of the United States President Abraham, President Abraham Lincoln, one of the few, very, very few level five presidents in United States history, who never let his ego get in the way of his primary ambition for the larger cause of the enduring great nation. Yet those who mistook Mr. Lincoln's personal modesty, shy nature, and awkward manner as signs of weakness found themselves terribly mistaken to the scale of 250 Confederate soldiers and 360 Union lives, including Lincoln's own life. So he talks about Abraham Lincoln, about humility plus will equals a level five leader. He said he wasn't just a good leader, but he's a great leader. And, and you know what's interesting to think about greatness, when you think about, and I, I put this in perspective of life, you, there, there is a difference between just good and great. And greatness um, stands the test of time. So when I think about John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now that stands the test of time for 2,000 years. I mean, it's like kind of the, it's like a, a cornerstone of our faith. Matter of fact, one of the things that I really appreciated in Lakeda's book, and I read this quote to you, but I think it's worthy of just reading briefly about testing the, the about standing the test of time. He says that the 26 word parade of hope, beginning with God, ending with life, and you're urging us to do the same, brief enough to ride on a napkin or memorize it in a moment, yet solid enough to weather 2,000 years of storms and questions. If you know nothing of the Bible, start here. If you know everything of the Bible, return here. John 3.16 stands the test of time. And so I was reflecting upon this this week, and I love with the idea, you know, the idea God loves, God gave, God, we believe, uh, you, you live. And then we talked about last week about the whosoevers and the howevers. You know, God, we're all whoevers, right? And he's, he's accepting us however he finds us. And he's always willing to listen to us whenever we call upon his name. And that lasts forever. Did you get that? The whoevers, the howevers, the whenevers, and the forevers. Some things stand the test of time. And John 3.16 is one of those. Uh, you know, I was reflected upon, and I, I wrote a couple of quotes this week, and here's, here's a couple of Harold Hendren quotes. You do not want to get on the wrong side of forever. Belief is the hinge to eternal, the eternal door of heaven that swings open or closed. Paul put it this way. He says, you know, for we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die or, um, and leave our earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put our own, our heavenly bodies, like new clothing, Paul says. For we put, will put on heavenly bodies and we will not 
be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh, but it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up in eternal life. God himself has prepared us for this and has guaranteed he has given us this to the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, one through five, the Apostle Paul. To me, that's not just good scripture. That's great scripture, because it gives us all hope. There are some things that are written that are just not good, but they're great, that stand the test of time. You know, I go to the Holy Land every year, and I'm looking forward to going to another trip. And and you know what's interesting is, um, when you go to the Holy Land, you know, King Herod, he was ruling over the Israeli area, and um, he built a lot of things. And what's interesting is, you know, of course he was part of the Roman Empire, He was um, a big deal, and he was a big builder. But let me just share with you a little bit about the Roman Empire and what happened to the Roman Empire and what happened to the buildings. Can you show that first slide? So this is what's left of, can you put that first slide up? No, but before that, did you have that other picture? That's what's left of Herod's palace. Did you get that? Some things stand the test of time and some things don't. That was, um, that's the foundation what's left of Herod's palace on the Mediterranean Sea. The, what I found out also, there's the other picture is the Roman Colosseum. Can you show that picture? Once again, they've had to kind of shore that up. In fact, I imagine it's gone through earthquakes and so forth, and you can see kind of the old part, and some of you all have been to the old Roman Colosseum, and some of you have seen it yourself, and I've actually been there myself. But I, you know what, I didn't realize this, is I was reading in um, Andy Stanley's book this last week, which is a, a, a very good book about, and he has a lot of historical information. And one of the things he talked about in the book is about the early Christian church. And how in the world did the early Christians actually survive? How did the early church actually survive? How, actually, how did it actually get off the ground and actually sustain itself in the middle of the Roman Empire? And what's very powerful is that, um, well, you know, what's very interesting is the Roman Colosseum became really a place of torture for the Christians because the Christians got blamed for everything. They were kind of the scapegoat. And so what's very interesting interesting as the Colosseum was being built and they put the Christians in there and they were being martyred and killed, there were still people on, well, the Romans were still hanging the Christians on the crosses. And what's very interesting is that, and he talks about this, is that somehow there is the tide shifted in the Roman Empire over the next two, three, four hundred years. And the tide had shifted because all of a sudden the Christian movement gained momentum. And the reason why the Christian movement gained momentum is because the Christians continued to be on the front lines of loving people rather than hating people. The reason why all of a sudden the Christian movement came actually was able to actually overcome, okay, overcome the Roman Empire is because they took to heart Jesus' command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And he also says, I've given you a brand new covenant. And he says, you know what? Here's, your, here's what I want you to do. I'm also giving you a brand new command. And guess what the early Christians did? They believed them. 
when Jesus says, love just as I have loved you. So there are Christians, in spite of all odds, as Andy Stanley talks about, as they were hanging the Christians on the crosses, as they were building the Colosseum, as they put, they finished the Colosseum and put the Christians inside the Colosseum and they began to torture them and kill them. Amazing. And spite of all odds, the Christians continued to win over the Roman Empire. And by the fifth century, they had. The Christians had won. And by what's very interesting is that there is a cross. I didn't realize this, but there is actually a cross. As you go into the entrance of where the emperor used to sit in his little own little skybox, guess what? There's a cross there now. As it meant, actually, the, the, when the Colosseum was being built, the cross had everything to do with torture and torturing the Christians. But by the 8th century, the Pope had actually declared to put a cross over that particular place where the emperor used to sit as a symbol and a dedication to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. See how the tide has shifted? Can you imagine being one of those Christians that was being martyred and killed in the first century in that Colosseum and looking up of all those people and you knew you were about to die, but you were dying for a cause because you were a Christian? Did you think maybe in your wildest dreams that someday the Colosseum, as you looked up all these people, that that particular Colosseum would be dedicated to the one that you were dying for? Wow. Now that's amazing. See, the cross isn't just a symbolism of goodness. It is a symbol of the greatness of Jesus Christ's sacrifice for the world. Can amen on that? There is a difference between good and great. There is, what I found in life is that when you put it in perspective, there is something about greatness truly stands the test of time. And one of the things I love about John 3.16 is that um, um, it has stood the test of time because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And to me, that's a promise that Christ gets to us. I cling to that promise every day. Someday I'm gonna be dead, just as Paul talks about here in 2 Corinthians. My, my earthly body is gonna go bye-bye, but I find in the truth that we find even in the New Testament and the Old Testament that God breathed life into man and woman. And the little translation is he gave them, when it comes to about the life, it gave, he gave them a soul. We all have a soul that lasts forever. And what I love about John 3.16 is it's a promise of everlasting life who believe in him. And it's not gonna let us down. Yeah, I close with a couple of those quick little stories is that my, um, my daughter, my granddaughter came to visit on Tuesday. So Donna spent a couple of days at the beach and so my granddaughter, we're gonna go pick her up. And um, so I thought to myself, okay, I'm gonna walk down this beach and I'm gonna find a shark's tooth for her. And, um, and so I walked up and down, it took me an hour, but I found one. By golly, I found one. And I was so excited that I found the shark's tooth for her. I, th I thought, you know, I thought she would be so jazzed up. I mean, how cool is it when you're like four years old? Oh man, a shark's tooth. So, um, so we went and picked her up and then um, on the way back to the condo, I told Marley, I said, Marley, Paul is, I, I, I want you to know, I got something really, really special for you. And she got all jazzed up, so excited. She says, what is it? 
And I said, I'm not telling you. You have to wait till we get back to the, to the condo. And, and so we got back and then she got busy. We took her down the beach and then, um, then her grandmother finally put her to bed. And all of a sudden, I hear a little pitter patter about 15 minutes later as she went to bed. She, she wasn't going to sleep. She walks out and she says, Paul, when'd you get me? And I said, all right, I'll get it for you. So when, and matter of fact, I got a picture of it. So here she is holding the shark's tooth. So I put that in her hand. And I said, Marley, Paul walked up and down this beach, and I found you the coolest thing in the world. I found you a shark's tooth. And this is what she says. I didn't want that. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted something else. (laughs) I said, what did you want? I think she wanted something big and pink, like a unicorn. That's what she wanted, right? She didn't get that. So here's the truth and the me- here's the part of the message today is, you know what, sometimes in life we're let down. But John 3, 16, it has proven the test of time. It's not just but good, but it's great. And the promise of everlasting that we life that we find in Jesus Christ, it will never let us down. They had stood the test of time. So I, I close with this thought today. I got my little umbrella. By the way, this is a vintage year umbrella. It's 31 years old. And here's the beautiful part when I think about this umbrella. Once again, this is my little visual aid today. Here's the beautiful thing. I think that John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We all stand underneath the umbrella of God's unconditional love and mercy and forgiveness and hope and the new covenant and the new command to love just as Jesus has taught us to love. To not hate, but to be great in his love. Amen? Amen. Amen and amen. On the night of